Well, today we start a brand new series, so if you're here with us today, good job. You're right at the front end. We are um, starting to talk about things that are timeless because we live in a world that's really trendy. People are trending, styles are trending, shows trend, and political trends. But the best thing about uh, living in a trendy world is that there are some things that are timeless. Some things don't change at all. Scripture is one of those things, and so for the next six weeks, we're going to spend time digging into things that are timeless, that don't change, that should be foundational to the way we view life, to the way we approach life, and to the way we interact with other people. Now, when people preach, preaching has several different goals. Sometimes preaching is meant to inspire. Today is not going to be inspiring. Sometimes preaching is meant to be practical. Today might not be practical. Sometimes preaching is intended to change perspectives. That's all about today is changing perspectives. Sometimes I'll get up here and try to be inspiring. Today's not inspiring. Sometimes I have several different points. Today's sermon will be pointless. Um, so we're going to have a good time because today and for the next six weeks, you know how we, we will uh, sometimes take sermon series that we see in other churches and we'll do our version of them here. This is not one of those. This is just me because as Larry talked about, um, we're going to be transitioning and I'll be leaving and I want to make sure you guys are in good ground, solid ground. And so uh, some pe- we're gonna, this is really a lousy sermon. You walk out of here, oh, that wasn't much of a sermon. You're right because I'm going to teach. We're just going to go straight teaching for the next couple weeks. You're going to get so smart, you won't even know what to do with yourselves. You guys are going to be awesome uh, at understanding scriptures. So because we're going to, and the reason I say this is not necessarily a great sermon is because typically I will take one particular passage and we'll drill down. Today, we have so many scriptures we're going to look at that I would highly recommend preachers not preach in this style. But this is not an ordinary day. So what I have provided for you, at the request of some of you, is a bulletin insert. We haven't done one of those in a long, long time. So if uh, you want to take a look so you don't have to scribble furiously, what I have done is provided for you a simple sermon outline of scriptures that I'm going to go over. You look at that page, there is a lot of them. And so we're not going to camp a long time on any particular passage But what we're going to do today is cover the entire Bible from the front to the back. Because as we go forward over these next six weeks, in order for us to understand where the particular pieces that we're going to examine, look at, and learn about fit, we have to understand the large picture, the big picture, what some would call the meta-narrative. It's the, the story that branches out over the whole thing. Now, if you have to miss uh, uh, one of these in this series, you can always go here to our website or iTunes and you'll catch up. And for this particular series, I intend to also on our website post a PDF of the slides that we're going to use and of the outlines that I'm going to put in the bulletin so that if you miss one or your dog eats your homework or something like that, you can always go back and and download uh, what you need. So, all right, are we ready to go? All right, here we go. The Bible, start right here. The Bible begins and ends with God living on earth with man. 
in the very beginning where you have everything set up in Genesis, you have the same type of scenario as you have at the very end of the story, and everything in between is just details. So the two passages would be Genesis 1 and Revelation 21. They both paint a very similar picture. But all of us know that this is not the reality right now. So how do we go from where we are now to where we need to be? If it started with God living on earth with man, he's not here with us now, and it's going to end up with God living on earth with man, where do we go? How do we get there? Well, the great news is the Bible lays out that entire story for us and the entire plan. So here we go. In the beginning, and we're not going to read every verse in the Bible today. In the beginning, the world was just as God wanted it to be. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, you have the creation story, and on one day he creates uh, light and darkness, and at the end of the day he says it was good. And then there's another day he creates land and the water and the sea and the sky, and he says it was good. And then he creates the land animals and those that fly in the air, and he says it was good. And then he creates the fish and the swim in the sea, and he says it was good. And by the time you get to the end of the creation piece of it, Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Like it was exactly as he wanted it to be. And what we see in that moment is God living on earth with man. Look at this passage of scripture here. Genesis chapter 3. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, this is not a unique thing to happen. Apparently, they're just kind of walking around together, having a good time, naming some animals. That's a fly. That's an elephant. Where'd you come up with that? Don't know. The fly is easy, right? But this seems to be in the normal course of a day. But this particular day... It's different. Perhaps you remember this story because it goes on to say, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the idea and the reality of sin introduced for the very first time that ruined the perfection that God had created. That when God had created the world, he stood back and said it was very good. But from this day forward, it was not very good. It was broken. And we have the story of the serpent, otherwise known as Satan, who shows up. He says to Adam and Eve, hey, did God tell you you can't eat from that tree? And they're like, yeah, that's the only rule we have. We only have one rule, right? Now, consider that for your life. When God said it was very good, how many rules did he have? Just one. So the state of affairs that we have right now with all the rules that we have, not good. Anyway, so God says to them, who, who, who taught you? Who taught you that you're naked? And they're aware of all that, and the weeks, and, and then he kicks them out of the garden, right? He says, okay, there's sin, you got to go. And we had talked several weeks ago about the fact that sin separates. It separates us from ourselves, it separates from others, and it separates us from God. And following this piece of the story, God can no longer live in the presence of man because of the presence of sin. So God hightails it out of here to heaven, and he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. And then the story gets rolling, because immediately God begins the process of restoration. He immediately has in place the idea of reconciliation, that God's love for us did not eliminate the consequences of the sin, which is an important point for us, right? Like, you can go to prom, and you have sex, you're not married, you get pregnant, and you can be forgiven of that, but there's still a Baby, you can run out in the road as a three-year-old, and I can forgive my kids of that, but if they get hit by a car, they still are hit by a car. 
We know that is a reality of life. We can be forgiven of anything, but we still live with the consequences of the action that needed forgiveness. So God never eliminates the consequences of sin, though he offers a reconciliation for it. And so at this point in the story, God introduces a curse. And of course, we know the typical curse that we read out of Genesis 3, that women from that point on experience pain in childbirth. Thank you very much, Eve. And then men experience uh, difficulty in their labor and their work. But God doesn't stop with the curses for men and women. Satan also gets a curse, which was interesting that we used the slide that we did for offering with the snake. So that's sort of a weird thing to put up in church. However, this is exactly the scripture that I want to look at because in Genesis 3 it says, this is God speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who's he talking about? Well, already in the Garden of Eden, God has foreseen the eventual birth of Jesus Christ. And he says to Satan, look, those that follow you, your children, you know, sort of a, a, a symbolic way, are going to be at odds with my son, the son of God, and you're going to bite his heel, crucifixion, but he will crush your head, that ultimately Christ will conquer death and the power of sin. Already in the Genesis story. So from Genesis, God then begins to establish a series of covenants. Covenants are nothing more than agreements. Contractually, they're they're sort of promises made. We see a promise or a covenant that he makes with Noah and then Abraham and David and then through Jesus, which we call the New Covenant. And all the the, uh, letters written about the New Covenant are collected into a book called the New Testament, which just means New Covenant. And the covenant with Noah was a promise with the rainbow that God would never again destroy the earth with water. But then we get to Abraham. I want to talk about Abraham. I want to talk about David. I want to talk about Jesus for a little bit today as we move forward. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, you can find listed and written out in Genesis chapter 12. The Abrahamic covenant is something called an unconditional covenant. There are conditional covenants and unconditional covenants throughout the scriptures. And you'll find conditional covenants, God will make a promise to do something if you obey, right? If you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you'll be, you know, punished. And there's this if-then type of thing. Those are conditional covenants. This is what's called an unconditional covenant, which means it doesn't matter what you're going to do. God has promised to do something that he says. So God asks uh, Abraham to move. And he does, he credits him to him as righteousness, and here's what it says in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land, I will show you. And he does. God drops into the, Abraham's life and he says, I need you to do something. I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but I need you to go. Just trust me. Abraham trusts him and he goes. And God says, your trust in me is faith and I'm going to credit righteousness to you because of your trust. Not because you got up and went, not because of your behavior, but because of your trust. And then God makes a promise to him in the very next verse. He says, I will make you into a great nation which is strange wording, but it simply means you're going to have bunches and bunches and bunches of chitlins. There are going to be a bunch of kids running around down through the ages, so many so that they will become a nation of people, which we know later becomes a nation of Israel. 
So he says, I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And so Abraham is promised uh, to have, go to the next one, descendants, right? They become Israel. And it says there that his name would be great, and today, here we are, nearly 4,000 years later, still talking about Abraham. Then he goes on, he says, I will bless you, in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And, and here's the significant part, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's just promised descendants, and he has promised that the world will be blessed through you. And so we have a promise here of blessing. Now, how is the entire world blessed through Abraham? That's the part of the story that we're going to continue to uncover today. Because eventually what we find is that through the lineage of Abraham is a man named David, and through the lineage of David is a man and a woman, Mary and Joseph, and they have a child named Jesus, and the entire world is blessed because of Jesus. Even here, we see a picture and a promise of that eventuality. But God's not done making promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Not only is he going to make him into a nation, and is he going to bless the world through him, but he makes a promise that often gets overlooked. It says just a few verses later in Genesis 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, which is part of the promise, the descendants, I will give this land. Now, this part of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant is often overlooked because it doesn't feel spiritual. It feels too physical, it feels political, it feels, you know, temporal. This isn't part of the promise God would make to Abraham. It absolutely is. We cannot underestimate or overlook the importance of this piece of that promise because God chooses to reiterate this promise four more times to Abraham in the book of Genesis. So I believe this is a critical piece of what he's promising. Notice just the next chapter, Genesis 13, verse 15. He says to Abram, All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring. And here's the key element. For how long? Forever. There is an eternal peace to this promise, which is interesting when we look up from our newspapers today and we see the state of the world. Two chapters later in verse, or chapter 15, after a, another conversation with Abram, on another day, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, this may not mean much to you unless you understand geography. So I brought a map today. So let's take a look at this. In this area over here on the left, you have the, the uh, great river of Egypt, which we know today as the river Nile. That's right. And over on the right, we have the river Euphrates, which runs right down through the middle of modern-day Iraq. God promises to give Abraham and his descendants, which we know as Israel, this amount of territory to last forever. When you flip on the news tonight and look at geopolitical maps, how much territory does Israel currently have? Not this much. Have they ever had this much? Not ever had this much, which means, has this promise been fulfilled yet? No, not yet. Well, maybe God makes mistakes. Eh. The reality is God's promises are always true. Let's look one more time. He's not done promising. Chapter 17. He looks 
out on the land of Canaan, and he says, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as, again, an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now, there are some scholars who come along and they look at Israel leaving Egypt eventually, going into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and say, oh, God's promises to Abraham were fulfilled there. The problem is that God was very clear about how long they would have that in possession. Forever. An everlasting possession. And they lost it. So that has not yet been the fulfillment of the promise. Now, in case you're already getting lost in the weeds, let me bring us back and summarize the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant includes... Number one, descendants. And we said that those descendants, those that were uh, come out of the line of Abraham, are today's Israel. We also said, secondly, that there would be a blessing to the entire world, and that blessing through the line of Abraham eventually comes through the person of Jesus. And we will continue to dig that out so it makes sense to you. And then, of course, there's this third piece, this land piece, and what we'll find throughout the rest of the scriptures, Jesus refers to this promise as the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So the story continues. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 different sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they have so many children. They grow into a nation while in slavery in Egypt. They go out under Moses. They settle into a new land. They go through a series of judges. They establish a country. They get an economic system in place. They put together a new system of government and eventually come to King David. And under King David, God makes yet one more promise. Not a conditional promise that if you do this, then I will do this. This is another unconditional promise, which we call the Davidic covenant. And you'll find this in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. The specific part of this promise that I want to look at is this piece in verse 16, which says, Your house, and this is God making a promise to David, Your house and your kingdom which means your rule, the, the, the nation, the kingdom that I'm going to establish, will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. In other words, eventually your house, meaning your line, at some point there will be someone in your line of kings that will rule over this kingdom that I'm establishing forever. Now, the interesting thing is we know that Israel at some point went away as a nation. Specifically in A.D. 70, the Romans dispersed the Jews across the entire world. Now, David was not alone in iterating this promise. Prophet Isaiah writes these words, and I want to make sure that I read these to you. And we read these typically around um, Christmas and uh, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now, at Christmas time, we always talk about the baby Jesus, and we read this, and we listen to Handel's Messiah, and it's so wonderful. But the reality is, the government has never rested on the shoulders of Jesus yet. Because the entire time Jesus was doing his ministry, he really wanted nothing to do with government, didn't he? He, he actually said, I'm not here to you know, take sides, I'm here to take over, I'm to establish something in your heart, we're supposed to be spiritually minded, I'm here to bring peace, etc., etc. And yet, when um, Pontius Pilate says, hey, they say you're a king, what's he say? It is as you said. So how can you be a kingdom 
without a king without a kingdom. Well, what Christians often like to do is say, well, it's really, he's talking about the rule in your heart. Well, that feels good, but it's not true to Scripture. It is true to Scripture, it's just not complete. That he does rule in our hearts, and there is a spiritual kingdom of which we are a part. But we cannot get away from the promises of land and territory and a throne and a kingdom made to Abraham and made to David, right? Now, Isaiah goes on to view a future ruler. Notice this, what he says in chapter 11. He says, and this is some symbolic language, so I'll parse this out for you. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear out. What? are you talking about? Well, what he's saying is, and we, we understand this symbolism, right? We talk about our family tree, right? And if you're from Kentucky, your family tree doesn't branch, right? So, but this one branches. Thank you, I'll be here all day. Now, I don't even know how to recover from that. Um, okay, what are we talking about? All right, okay, okay, sorry. Okay, so he says, the shoot will come out uh, from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse is the father of who? David, right? So we're talking about the line of David, and it says a branch will bear fruit from this line of David, right, who begins with Jesse. Notice the next phrase here. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So we know clearly and without a doubt, we're talking about an individual who's going to come from the line of Jesse, which is from the line of David. And it says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears. Go on. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And we need to understand that sometimes when we judge in scriptures, it doesn't mean pronouncing judgment. It means administrating. It means pronouncing decisions and making decisions like this. So going on, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. We will come back to that momentarily in the book of Revelation. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is not just any ordinary king, not any ordinary ruler. Going on. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. So he's all talking about when this king rolls into town and he's doing all of this administrative work and he's ruling with righteousness, he's caring for the needy, he's bringing justice to the world. At the same time, this is what's happening outside in the garden and all over the world and down in the river bottoms. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling will uh, together and a little child will lead them. Going on, the cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, that's a lot of verses simply to say, When you read that, that is not what we see today. But it is exactly what the Garden of Eden sounded like. And if the Garden of Eden was like that, and it's not what is now, but it's a promise of what will be, the Bible begins with God living on earth with man, and it ends with God living on earth with man. This is a picture of something yet to happen, something down the road. In fact, David writes this in Psalm 145. 
He says, your kingdom, this is a prayer and a song of praise, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. And here he ties this faithfulness to God's promises to an everlasting kingdom. And something that we can be confident in regarding God is this simple statement, all God's promises are true. And if all God's promises are true, then it is beneficial to understand what those promises include. What are those promises? Well, the Old Testament, which we've just gone through, and in summary, promises this that God will send a Messiah, which is a Hebrew word for the anointed one, to sit on David's throne, right? He's going to be a king. For what? To rule over a kingdom. So there is a land to be conquered. There is a territory to govern. There are people to oversee. But that kingdom is not political. It is established by God. Where? On the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. All of those promises are key. But when does this happen? And who's the Messiah? Well, we know from our vantage point in history that it's Jesus. That Jesus is the Messiah to sit on David's throne, to rule over a kingdom established by God on the earth. And we're not there yet. And Jesus, at this point in the story, is not here yet yet. Now, does Jesus like forget these promises about a land and a kingdom and and ruling over things? And then he comes in and he's sort of a, a, you know, just a nice guy. And he's like, just forgive your enemies and love them and take their coat an extra mile and do all these things and don't fight back and all of this. What happened to the rulership? What happened to the messiahship? What happened to the king? Which is why precisely that the Jews didn't think that Jesus was the right guy, right? Because he's too nice. He's not raising an army. That's the whole issue Judas had, right? Jesus, if you're going to make me in charge of the finances, we don't have enough money here to raise this army. And if you're the Messiah, I'm a good Jewish boy. I know my Old Testament history. The Messiah is supposed to rule the world. What are you doing about it? Well, notice what Jesus says at the very beginning and outset of his ministry. Luke 4, 43. But he said... This is just as he's beginning his ministry. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. In other words, Jesus had one specific mission, and that was to preach good news of this kingdom that is consistent with what the Old Testament prophets already promised. Wait a second. I thought he was about the gospel, What is the gospel? Interesting, isn't it? Because this word here, good news, actually is gospel. It's the Greek word evangelion, which is where we get evangelism, right? Now, it's interesting, if you listen to people like Billy Graham, Billy Graham actually made this statement years and years and years ago that Jesus came to do three days' work. He meant simply that his death and resurrection was the pinnacle and the only reason that Jesus came to do ministry. The problem is, Jesus disagrees with that. The problem is, while that is true, right, don't ever hear me say anything is less significant about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only thing that gives us hope. But Jesus preached the gospel 
before his death. So clearly, the gospel has to include more than just his death and resurrection. Otherwise, he couldn't have preached the gospel before his death and resurrection happened. Does that make sense? Is that, like, too simple? Okay. Right? Like, okay, let me, let me change this. You can't make a three-point basket until you shoot it. Right? Okay, does that make sense? All right. So, you can't preach the gospel if it's, if it's that. Now, so what is Jesus talking about? When he says, I've come, the reason I was sent, why I was sent was to preach this gospel of the kingdom. Let's look at something called the Beatitudes. Right? This is before the, the death and resurrection. Jesus says, and, and you'll recognize these, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, th- for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Now, when Matthew writes kingdom of heaven, he's writing to Jews who didn't like to say God, so he substitutes heaven here, but let's just go with this. The kingdom of heaven, he begins to draw some parallels. Anybody good at math, right? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals, hey, see, geniuses. All right, so blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So here he says, blessed are these people, and then a reward so one reward is the kingdom of heaven. Another reward is that they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he brings it full circle, right? So let me just put all these promises that Jesus makes up on the screen together. That we have the kingdom of heaven is the same as when you're comforted, which is the same as when you inherit the earth which is the same as when you're filled. It's when you'll be shown mercy. It's when you'll see God and you'll truly be called children of God. Jesus ties these all together. This is part of what he was preaching. He says, I gotta go to the other towns also and preach the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. So what is it he was preaching? That when you get the kingdom of heaven, it's all about inheriting the earth. It's when you're shown mercy, right? It's when Jesus shows up and he forgives you. It's when you'll see God eventually. All of this is encapsulated in this messianic role here. And it's, it, it, it's, it's just awesome when you really understand what he's talking about. Jesus says, essentially, God will establish a kingdom on earth. That's what his entire ministry was pointing to. Now, ultimately, he had to make the sacrifice and go to the cross in order for us to be included in that. But that's the second part of this. Notice this, and this isn't just limited to Jesus. Anybody ever read the book of Acts? The book of Acts is simply the story of the church. Because after Jesus was crucified, the Gospels, which we typically refer to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the Gospels, are the stories of Jesus. But then after Jesus dies and he's resurrected, he's taken to heaven, and then the story continues on. The book of Acts tells that story. Like what happens after the big event? Well, this is how the message of Jesus continued to spread throughout the world. This is where the church got started. What was the central message of the church? Well, let's let them answer it. Because immediately after the resurrection, Jesus conducts a 40-day seminar with his disciples, which is kind of like what I'm doing with you guys. I wouldn't compare myself to Jesus. But, you know, it's one of those, hey, here's the things that are important. So he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Like, ta-da, here I am. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days 
and spoke about his death and resurrection? No, they were clearly aware of that because you were dead 42 days ago and now you're not. But he spoke to them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And then after those 40 days, this is, look at this, verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him. Now, after 40 days of intensive teaching, this is the conclusion that they drew. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They weren't even thinking about the world at that time. Jesus, you just spent 40 days talking to us about this kingdom of God, so is it now? Is this when you're going to take the throne? Is this when you're going to establish, when the government will be on your shoulders? The, the, the theologian John Calvin <laughs> says basically that the disciples were so dumb. The, the actual quote is, there are more mistakes in this question than there are words. Because he didn't understand the gospel of the kingdom. So, so this is something that continues through the book of Acts. Acts 8, as they continue to, to go out, says, and as they're preaching, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news, which means gospel of what? The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So as the church was expanding and people were preaching the gospel, the gospel comes in you know, a two-piece parcel. There's this kingdom message that God's going to change the world, and there's this Jesus is the way he's going to do it. The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. God's going to remake everything as it was once before, and he's going to do it through his son because of the death and resurrection. Uh, we'll just fly through these. Acts 14. They preached the gospel... In that city, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So they equate the gospel with the kingdom of God. Acts 19, this is Paul's focus too. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about what? The kingdom of God. Acts 20. Now I know that none of you, this is Paul on, on his way out, he's leaving a church, he's probably not going to see him again. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So basically Paul says, if you wanted to summarize what I was doing here, I was preaching the kingdom. Acts, uh, where are we going next? 28. Um, this is at the end of Acts. Acts, um, Paul has been on trial, he's under arrest, this is towards the end of his life. It says, he witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses and the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Just like Philip preached the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Those two things are linked because Jesus is the Messiah, and because of his death and resurrection, it's con- we can be confident that God's promises are true. And the last two verses of that book say, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, he was under house arrest, and welcomed all who came to see him, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. That's a lot of verses, Seth, but it's one theme, the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. Notice this, and I think this is important to see, that Jesus and Paul taught the same thing. They both proclaimed the kingdom of God. And after the resurrect, death and resurrection, you know, Paul was able to add Jesus' way into that. And they also agreed with the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't something we can discard. I know that we're not under the law, and we don't do the sacrifices, and we don't have to keep all those rules, but we cannot ignore and let go of 
and discard the Old Testament. It is the setup to the punchline. It is the first half and gives reason for the second half. Let's look at how Paul continues to take this message of Jesus to people who are not Jewish and wouldn't have a a baked-in understanding of the Old Testament. Notice what he says in Romans 4, and this is where you come in, and this is where I come in. Paul says, writing to a bunch of Christians who lived in Rome, who didn't grow up in Israel, who may not have had the Old Testament and the law and the prophets, he says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. You remember we looked at that in the Abrahamic covenant. God promised him way back before Moses and before the law that I'm going to give you descendants, I'm going to bless the world through a descendant of yours and land, right? So Paul says, remember the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And again, just to reiterate, Abraham wasn't given that promise because he behaved so well. It's because he exhibited faith and trust. Paul goes on to say that promise, right, to be an heir of the world, comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring. Well, that's great, but I'm not Jewish. Ah, so he clarifies. Not only to those who are of the law, those who practice Judaism, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. So you don't have to follow the law to be an heir according to this promise. Paul clarifies. He says, he is the father of us all. As it is written, and he quotes Genesis, I have made you a father of many nations. And so Paul concludes, he is our father in the sight of God. In other words, because of your faith, you are now considered by God to be a descendant of Abraham. In fact, he spends all of chapter 11 of Romans talking about how you've been grafted in to Israel. Later, in another letter to a bunch of Christians in another Mediterranean city over in Galatia, he writes this, So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, coming up in a couple weeks, we're going to do an entire message on baptism and what it means and why it's important and what spiritual significance there's there. So Paul concludes, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, nobody has more spiritual favor than another because of who you are, because of your gender, because of your religious background, because of your uh, racial or ethnic heritage. If you belong to Christ, he says, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise, which is really cool. That means God has promised you to inherit the world. We become heirs according to the promise given to Abraham because of the faith that we share with him the faith that God is true to who he is and that he'll do all he says he would do, and believing that Jesus is his Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and he died for our sins. And like I said, we're going to come back to this issue of baptism on on 20th, which is our Baptism Sunday, but our promise comes to us through Jesus, through Abraham, therefore we are heirs according to the promise. 
So let's talk about that faith. What time is it? Okay, good. We got 12 minutes. All right. <laughs> Hebrews 11. We're wrapping up here because we're on the, on the downhill slide, but it's getting better. Hebrews 11 is typically referred to uh, as, as kind of cutesy, the hall of faith, like a hall of fame, because of those who are listed in it as a result of their faith. Lots of Old Testament figures. And we, we are familiar with this particular verse. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You've probably heard messages on that or seen that on somebody's refrigerator or Facebook wall or something like that. But faith is being confident of what we hope for and we do not see. And then through that chapter, it goes on and on and on to list people who had great faith. And it actually uses the phrase, by faith, and then it names a guy and then it says what he did. So it goes through this list, and this is not an exhaustive list, but if you read through Hebrews chapter 11, in one verse it'll say, by faith, Abel did such and such. By faith, Enoch did such and such. By faith, Noah by faith, Abraham, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Joseph, by faith, Moses. If there's a list of guys who are going to make it, that's a list, baby. I mean, that's your heavy hitters. That is your hall of fame of people in the scriptures who are like, if anybody got it right, it's those guys. But notice what it says right in the middle of this passage in verse 13. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. Like, they didn't lose it. They were on track. They knew exactly what they were doing. They did not receive the things promised. What? They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Now, from our vantage point, that makes sense if we believe the promises of Scripture all about a kingdom that's coming, established on the earth, ruled by a Messiah. But if we walk around with this idea that all God has promised us is to live on a cloud, play a harp, and have little angels' wings, that doesn't have anything to do with Scripture. So clearly, these guys didn't get what's promised. Notice this, then, at the end of the chapter, as it goes through even more, verse 39, it says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Why? Verse 40, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be what? Made perfect. In other words, if your hope as a Christian is to live forever, to be made perfect. The writer of Hebrews says, we're all going to get that at the same time. And when would that be? Well, at the resurrection of Jesus. And that's another message in this series. You don't want to miss anything in the next coming weeks. Because this plan that is better, to not only make you perfect, as we saw in the book of Isaiah, it's to make the world perfect. Right To restore what was good, as God said in Genesis, very good, and we know now is broken. We all experience brokenness, don't we? I mean, we don't even have to convince ourselves of that. We have cancer, diabetes, divorce, child molesting. You just go, presidential election. I mean, you just go on down through the list. We know the world is not perfect. So restoration is a theme through the scriptures that is tied to the kingdom of God. Notice this, and I want to just wrap up a couple things here. Back in the book of Acts, 
as they're taking this message about the kingdom of God out and the name of Jesus Christ and trying to convince everybody in the world that it's going to get better, this is part of that message. Speaking about Jesus, it says, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So let me just make this clear. Next slide. God will restore everything when Jesus returns because it's about a Messiah that will rule as a king on the throne of David over a kingdom that God establishes on the earth. And Hebrews says that's when we'll be made perfect. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is about inheriting the earth and being comforted and being shown mercy and seeing God. And so, Revelation 19. John, having a vision of what is to come, and as the story wraps up, writes these words for us. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me... I love this story. I saw heaven standing open in there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he, wage, and he judges and wages war, and on his robe and on his thigh has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you want to read through this story after Jesus shows up on this white horse, wielding a sword, ready for battle. Then in Revelation 20, the next chapter, the angels go out and they grab Satan, they wrap him up in a chain, they throw him in an abyss, lock it up for a thousand years, and Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years of peace, tranquility, near perfection, and at the end of that thousand years, Satan's let out for a short time, and then he makes a big bungling mistake and tries to get people to rebel against God, and there's this big thing called Armageddon, which you probably heard about but know nothing about. None of us really do. And then there's a final judgment. And then it comes to conclusion. Revelation 21. Let me Here's what John sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Folks, we didn't fly away anywhere, but we'll get to that. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, right? Jesus must remain in Heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised through his prophets long ago. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. The Bible begins and ends with God living on the earth with man. Verse 3, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making 
everything new. That's cool. That, my friends, is timeless. And that story is what gives us the framework for what we're going to talk about over the next five weeks as we come to grips with the things that scriptures teach us that perhaps change our perspective on the life we experience around us. And what you'll find is these are not go out and do these thing type of sermons, but these are, here's a picture of God's view of reality. And as much as we can get lost in our news uh, cycles and our sports teams and our kids' activities and what's happening with the, the housing market and what's going on with our 401ks and are we going to get a new pastor and what's going to happen with our school teams. As much as we can get busy with those things, this is God's view of reality. And that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about baptism. We're going to talk about death. And we're going to talk more specifically about the kingdom and what that's all about. I hope you hear Every week on this series, it's going to be good. It's sort of my love letter to you guys, because this is what's going to keep us grounded. We're going to close today with a song that is timeless in a way, and time has forgotten. But the words of it say, the Bible stands, though the world may crumble, and I can't even remember the other words. So we're going to put this up. It is an old-time hymn. But the words seemed appropriate, and so we're going to sing a song that's timeless in many ways. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the story that you've given us through the scriptures. We know that your promises are true. Sometimes we get so busy in life that we just forget those things. We lose our way. We, we, our perspective gets thrown off. And we just ask that through these next couple of weeks, you would remind us of the bedrock, timeless, foundational truths that create the reality in which we live and participate. We look forward to the day that your son returns. And until then, Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that they reflect you with the confidence of knowing that your promises are true and that the Bible stands the test of time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.